Welcome to the Unraveling Science podcast, the podcast where we listen to the stories that shape the science, but also the scientist. I'm your host, Dr. Megan Hanlon, and I'm so happy to be back for season four. This season, I'll be bringing you stories mainly featuring Irish scientists abroad, but we'll also feature some key Irish researchers working here at home. We have such a diverse season to look forward to, from ecology to physics, paleontology to neuroscience, and so much more. So if you're ready, let's begin unraveling science. This season, I'm extremely grateful to be continuing to work with our wonderful sponsors, Biosciences Limited. Biosciences are now part of Thermo Fisher Scientific. You can check out what they supply at thermofisher.com. Professor Moran Irish, a cognitive neuroscientist at the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney, is my guest on the podcast today. So Moran's research explores memory and imagination and how these processes can break down in diseases such as dementia. Her list of accolades is extremely exhaustive. She has been the recipient of the L'Oreal UNESCO for Women in Science Award and the International Rising Talent Award, the 2019 British Neuropsychology Elizabeth Warrington Prize, and most recently, the Early Career Science Award for Australia and Oceania. So Moran, it is so wonderful to have you flying the Irish flag on an international level and so wonderful to have you on the podcast today. So thank you so much for coming on to chat with me. That's my pleasure. Thanks so much for inviting me. So um, I kind of want to, you know, go back to what you were like when you were in school and did this curiosity and this kind of interest in science and psychology begin at an early age or, or with what were you interested back then, in back then? Yeah, I think so. Looking back, probably if you asked my parents to describe me, they would probably say I was like a perfectionist um, from a very early age. So I just wanted to do really really well and it was it didn't really matter what the the task was I would kind of just put my mind to it and just work away at it and my dad always tells this story about um me trying to master this kind of like pogo stick kind of thing and that I kept falling off and he like himself and my mom were watching me and I kept grazing my knees and scraping myself and cutting myself into pieces and they were like when is she going to stop (laughs) and I didn't (laughs) so I have this sort of um like I have this determination basically where I just it's I don't know I I, by even my child um Fiona always says mommy never gives up (laughs) so I think that was kind of like my trait throughout school I genuinely was just interested I think in everything like I never knew what I wanted to be when I grew up so I I wasn't one of these um kids that had this clear idea of a career And so I just, yeah, I was just interested in pretty much everything. I really liked geography. I loved languages. Yeah, I was good at maths. So I kind of had everything very broad, even when I went into secondary school. I just had, you know, I chose my subjects quite broadly and, um, like, you know, did a language, did science, and then did like accounting or something. So I kept it really, really broad and I honestly did not know what to do when it came to picking um, a course or going to university Um, initially I had all the kind of usual suspects like medicine law and I remember having a very sort of candid conversation with my mother and she was like if you get medicine and you probably will get the points to get medicine you're gonna have to you know touch people and dress wounds and you know be exposed to blood and gore and she was like do you really want to do that and I was like no and so when the change of mind came around I thought I'll go psychology because I really am interested in how people tick 
And it felt like I could still combine a bit of the biology that I was interested in with more of that, you know, the humanity side as well. So that's kind of how I just, yeah, I, I really didn't have a plan and didn't for a long time, actually, as will probably become apparent <laughs> through this conversation. <laughs> and so you grew up in Wexford, is that right? Yeah. I read somewhere where you said, you know, you, your house was filled with books and, and things like that. So did that spark your interest as well? Yeah. Um, so both of my parents, both of them were secondary school teachers. So my mom taught science and biology. So I think just it was that idea that I'd see these diagrams or these kind of science books would be lying around or she'd be, you know, and there'd be like chemical equations and, you know, aspects of physics or something in there. So it was like it was just part of the background. Um, and then my dad is an artist. So he taught art and art history in secondary school. And so it was like this mix of, yeah. you know, science and the arts in the house. Um, and my dad is a real like lover of books. So we have every room is pretty much stacked with bookcases that are like overflowing. And I remember one of the things I really, really loved was that he had these hardbound encyclopedias that would go, like there were maybe 20 or 30 of them and you could go and pick one out and I'd just be sort of leafing through, you know, looking at different things and diagrams. And for my birthday, when I think I turned 11, my dad bought me my own kids encyclopedia. And I just remember being like, oh, this is so cool. And then starting to do little projects on, you know, space or snakes was another one that I decided to do a project on. So just, I think I was really curious and just really interested in everything. Like I was fascinated with Greek mythology. So like there was no real pattern to it. I just really enjoyed learning about things and yeah going a bit deeper I think than just you know skimming the surface maybe of like you would in school I like to go a little bit further with understanding things and and I think you know the point that you made about you know the usual suspects of like medicine and law and I think that's what happens sometimes when people are interested in a lot of different subjects and possibly will get the points and you think they think then well if I'm going to get those points well I should be doing something like medicine when it might not suit them at all absolutely and looking back if I had gotten into medicine I know I would have it wouldn't have been the career path for me I just know that's not the way like now I can see it it just was completely the wrong choice for me and I was literally picking it based on prestige and points and thinking like this is what I should be going for and yeah just I do remember very vividly that conversation with my mom and she was like but you hate blood and you you hate this kind of thing and you get queasy watching casualty like you this is not for you and I was like oh yeah (laughs) actually it's not (laughs) I don't want to be doing this at all so um Yeah, I think then psychology, I mean, I really fell into it. It was more, again, looking down that list and doing the change of mind form and kind of going, okay, well, I'll go psychology then. And I just put all the psychology courses down, which were very few at the time, and just thought, well, let's see what happens. So you ended up doing psychology in Trinity. And how was that experience? Yeah, I, I was only talking to someone about this the other day, that how when I first arrived at university, I was so naive. And I think, you know, I was a little sort of country bumpkin, like up in the big city. And my brother was already in Trinity studying engineering so I had someone I could kind of go to to ask where to find things and you know what should I be doing where's the library but I do remember being in those early lectures 
And the level of discussion that was happening was so not what I was used to. It was very like questioning and people were talking about how eclectic psychology as a discipline was. And I was like, oh, I don't know what that word means. Like I, I'm out of my depth. Like I'm I'm not meant to be here. And I think first year in university, when you're so used to being, you know, just studying, you know, your honors maths and you've got a formula that you need to just drill in or you, you've got to learn off your poems for Irish or, you, you know, it's very different when you make that transition to, to college and you're no longer like the top of your class or the top of the school. And now like, I guess you're matched mm-hmm. um, and everyone in the group is very, very good. And everyone's coming with these, you know, really diverse opinions and really good insights. And I remember just feeling like I am, you know, I'm just out of my depth here. I'm really, I'm not good at this at all. And being quite worried about it, but not knowing not knowing how to study or to read for this type of degree so first year I floundered a bit and I didn't really know what I was doing and didn't really like you know I I mean I did okay in the exams but I didn't do very well and that was like oh you know this is new this is a new sensation and then I kind of got into it a bit more in you know second and third year and things started coming together more but I think it was a little bit of a shock going from a very like prescriptive learning kind of environment where you're studying for specific things and then moving into this more um critical thinking and you know maybe the answer isn't right and you need to think about you know, yeah. maybe like this paper has been published, but maybe this isn't actually good science. And, you know, that kind of way in learning about like the scientific method. And yeah, it was, it was definitely a, a bit of a shock to the system. Yeah. And it's, it's such a different way of learning, you know, and and I suppose as well, I, fe- I hear this, you know, from conversations in the podcast as well, of people who, you know, were high achievers. And then when they come into college, they're, you know, not happy because, you know, they're, they're putting themselves up to such a high standard and then are really upset when they're not the top of the class, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's ridiculous. Like, you know, we're going off to university at 18 and like, you know, it's, we're, you're still only a child then. And you know, trying to cope with like living independently and being away from home and, you know, making a whole new bunch of friends and finding out who you kind of are outside of that, you know, tight family that you grew up with. Yeah. And I remember in first year, I got like a two one at the end of the, for the end of year marks. I was devastated. (laughs) It was like, you know, what's going on here? But like, I hadn't in like, in retrospect, I had not studied that much. I was cramming the night before and, you know, really just like fudging my way through without really knowing what I was supposed to be doing. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's probably a common story for a lot of people when they first go to college. Like you don't really know what you're doing, but it comes together as you kind of mature as well. And so I suppose when you got to, you know, the end of your degree, did you go straight into a PhD or was there a um, period uh, in between? No. So, I mean, the short answer is no. Um, so when I finished my degree, there had been other things kind of going on in the background. Um, so my grandmother had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's when I was doing my leaving cert. And during that time when I was in university, this was always on my mind and so like I'd be going home at the weekends to visit and you know we had been very close and this sort of made me pivot in the research that I you know my research interest and also just I started gravitating much more towards being interested in memory because you know when you're seeing someone 
who, and maybe we'll talk about this later, who had such an exceptional memory, it's starting to go. Mm-hmm. It really, I, I just wanted to understand like what's going on and can I do something to help? And so in my honors year, my um, thesis, I was very, very lucky to get a summer scholarship to work with um, Robert Cohen in St. James's Hospital. And so the project that I was working on for my honors was looking at music as a sort of a remediation tool for memory in Alzheimer's. And so that was great. This was where it's like these little serendipitous things that make you feel like, oh, this is this is what I want to do. So I was starting to see patients and to, you know, do an actual experimental manipulation. And but during that time, my grandmother actually died. Um, so at the Christmas of my sort of final year, that was very unsettling. And so like I was really devastated by that and it just felt like I didn't want to kind of go on with my honors year and maybe I would take time off and because I was still working with the patients and it was all very raw and you know trying to um yeah deal with my grief but also still wanting to do the project and then luckily for me actually the university system sort of came to the rescue and they were able to give me a spot on campus that was hugely helpful so I ended up moving into Goldsmith in the final part of my um, fourth year and just a few little things happened that kept you know kept me on track and kept me like yeah, I felt like they kind of came to the rescue, like my tutor, um, Ray Fuller, kind of saw that I was like very unsettled by all of this. And he organized for these things to happen in the background. I don't even know what strings he pulled, but all of that kept me in and kept me on track. And I felt like, look, I can I can get to the end of the year and I can do this. But once I got my degree, I just decided um, I don't want to you know, I don't want to do another year of study. I've been in, you know, formal education since I was like four years old. Um, And so I just took the year off and just got a random administrator job in an architect firm and just was like doing absolutely nothing to do with my degree and just kind of living and hanging out in Dublin and just weighing up my options, I think. I didn't really think about the PhD as being the next logical step for me. I think I was just a bit needed to get over that final year. Um, But then out of the blue, I got an email from Ian Robertson, who had been one of my supervisors for my honours project. And he said, oh, we've just we're opening up this institute of neuroscience. We're going to have these scholarships. You know, maybe this is something you want to consider. And it was like, again, just someone offering you this like incredible, you know, opportunity and going like, maybe you might want to think about coming back. And so I was like, yeah, that's it. wrote a proposal, started thinking about, you know, what this could look like. It's not being sure actually really what a PhD entailed. So I was the first one in my family to embark on this. So it was kind of like, oh yeah, it sounds great. Like I'll get the title doctor. This sounds really good, but still not really understanding what that would you know mean or where it would take me like into in terms of a career path but yeah so I had a year off and then went back to do my PhD again it's going to sound like the most haphazard career but I honestly didn't really know what I was doing 
No, I think actually a lot of people have said, you know, this is echoed through many podcasts and that, you know, there wasn't a set journey or a set plan, just serendipity came along and, you know, right place at the right time and put work into mm. it. And, you know, it, it it worked. And I think that idea of the mentorship that you received is so important. And it's so, you know, wonderful that they were looking out for you at, at such a young age. Yeah. And I think as well, this is something that I try to do now, it, you know, is when opportunities come up that you you do think of the people who would benefit from it. So, I mean, Ian didn't have to contact me with that. I'm sure he had other students or, you know, people coming through his group, but just people who are in holding that power, it makes such a difference how they, you know, how they dole it out. And I don't know what would have happened if I hadn't received that email and just decided to go for it and um, because I don't think I had enough confidence to actively pursue and say actually I want to go and do a PhD what are my options how do I get funding I, I honestly didn't know anything about the system so to be told like this is available if you write the proposal you know it's basically it's yours that was just like it's what I needed probably to pull me back in because I don't know if I would have done it myself Yeah, no, it's amazing. And for the PhD, you know, you went into it kind of blind, as you said. So how was the experience? So, I mean, the thing, my biggest benchmark for PhDs is now as a supervisor myself, and I look at my students and I think they are working so hard and they come in with this plan and they know exactly what they want to do. And they have these clear, like career aspirations. And again, I just was like this naive, you know, green just I felt like looking back at myself I was like a buffoon I didn't know what I was doing I just knew that I was excited about this topic which was we originally had planned that we would keep going with music understanding the mechanisms of it and why it was you know so powerful in sort of unlocking memories in Alzheimer's and sort of ameliorating like agitation and that kind of thing and and I suppose I entered into the PhD the first year I found quite isolating. So I was based primarily up at um, St. James's Hospital, but there weren't many other PhD students around. And it was much more, you know, clinician fellows who were in, you know, very focused, getting their projects done. And it was a very lovely place to work, but just I had no one there for my own kind of cohort. Mm -hmm. And so my supervisors, um, Brian Lawler and Ian Robertson, they we kind of had a meeting and then Brian was like, I think you're too isolated up here. I think we need to get you into the fray, like in, in Trinity, where you'll be around other students. So at the same time, I mean, so many you know coincidences, but they had just opened up TCIN and the Neuroscience Institute. And yeah, I mean, strings were obviously pulled and I was put into an office and then met a whole other, you know, group of PhD students who were all at the same age as me. And just having that camaraderie and, you know, that we're all going through it together. And then it was arranged um, that I could join Shane O'Mara's group because just to have more of that neuroscience and cognitive kind of expertise as well. So then I was put in with his lab group and then it was like we had you could go to lab meetings. You know, we were going to conferences together. There were postdocs. um, And then it was much more of like I'm in a team, whereas before I think I felt like I was pretty much on my own floundering around. I had great supervision, but I think 
it just doesn't you need both you need yeah. the team and you need like the good mentors because they're too busy to go for lunch and moan with you or you know <laughs> just having that extra bit of like of camaraderie I think but again I would say you know I didn't I definitely didn't apply that same rigor that I see now and I think that's a product probably of how the system has changed and become so much more competitive so it was fun you know so I felt like doing my PhD was fun and like the emphasis was really on you know producing a good body of work and producing the thesis yeah and I think now it's really been the emphasis has shifted to producing publications and that's something big that I've noticed when I'm supervising so when I was a student you could successfully you could be deemed a very successful PhD student if you had you know, presented posters at international meetings, if you had, you know, obviously done this corpus of work that fit together with a golden thread linking everything through, defended against, you know, hopefully an expert in your field and come out with this product or this amazing body of work and new knowledge. And now suddenly that doesn't seem like it's enough. So now you're expected to come out with X number of publications that you've given talks, that you've done lab visits, that you've be marketing yourself like mm. from day one yeah no and, and I definitely agree with that that there is nearly like a selling of yourself or a marketing of yourself you know um at a, like an early stage now but I suppose I'm wondering then you know you moved to um, Australia where you're based now and how did that come about and then you know we'll lead on to your research then which I'm very excited to talk about yeah at the end of my PhD so I think I was sort of like got, I'm still not sure like what do I want to do like do I want to try and train and become um, like a clinical neuropsych or do I want to stay in research and at the same time I had met my now husband who um, is from New Zealand and he was postdocing in TCIN and he kept saying like oh I'd love to show you the southern hemisphere like we'll have to go exploring and go traveling and so that's basically what I did following um, my PhD I worked for maybe I think nine months in industry as a stats analyst okay. and then after that we left in I think it was October of 2008 and went around like Asia China Southeast Asia like just went did the traditional kind of gap year and <laughs> um, ended up in in um, New Zealand and spent a few months there and then came across to Melbourne like on a one-year working holiday visa and it was basically that was it it was just we're here we're gonna just do the classic like one year get jobs and see what happens and at the same time 2008 the market had fallen you know the global financial crisis had happened and my parents were like everyone is leaving Ireland you need to get a visa because everyone's going to be going out there and you need to get yourself sorted you can't come back because there's nothing here it was like yeah. oh my god so so then that kind of changed changed everything and because I was on this limited kind of visa the options for work were really like restricted so I have this period on my CV where I basically was just working part-time jobs and they were like research assistant kind of positions where I was just doing the testing or the data collection that kind of thing on very kind of random projects that weren't really directly related to what I was interested in originally in hindsight I can see that was like it was very beneficial for me because I got 
a lot of exposure to different clinical populations. Like I was working on a study um, that was looking at the effects of ECT on memory function in, you know, treatment resistant depression. But at the time I had this thing of like, oh, I've, I've really messed this up. How am I going to get back in? Like I'm out two years now, like what am I doing? And so um, at the weekends I was trying to, you know, write papers from my PhD to try and get back in. And I, I hadn't a clue about the Australian system. Um, it's really, really competitive. It's like super competitive. Like the PhDs are coming out with papers upon paper upon papers. And so again, I think I was starting to sort of look around to see well, what's out there, like are there positions? And I started contacting labs in Queensland, Sydney and Melbourne, just putting feelers out, which for me, it was very uncomfortable. It's kind of like, hi, I'm, you know, I'm really interested in your work. Um, this is my CV. It's terrible. <laughs> you know, I've got no paper. I've got like two papers, maybe. If anything comes up, could you keep me in mind? And I sent, you know, sent off and people were really good. They all got back to me and was like, oh, that's great. You know, I'll keep you in mind. Within, I'd say, a two hours of me emailing John Hodges, who is formerly of Cambridge and had moved and established a research team in Sydney, he replied back and went, oh, dear Marin, thank you for your CV. This looks great. We're, we've just advertised for a postdoc looking at memory function in frontotemporal dementia. Would you like to come and interview for the position? And I was just like, this is it. I have to get this job. Like, I, this is. <laughs> so um, that was kind of the start of it. So I flew up, interviewed, thought I had messed it all up. I had to give a talk. And walked out of there going, I'm never going to see these guys again. Like, that was terrible. <laughs> and then they um, contacted me to offer me the job. And so we moved up the following year. And that's where I've been ever since. So, wow, yeah, just the universe keeps throwing me these bones. <laughs> you have to take them as well. Like, I think I, I'm just very, very lucky that I contacted that group when I did. And yeah, and then I think I was lucky that it was the group that it was because they they obviously saw something in me and they when I did get hired for this position it was for a specific grant through the Australian Research Council so I was working on this study and they sort of gave me leeway to start setting up my own stuff so I ended up trying to do the two things in parallel and then sort of like abandoned the original study and just launched this whole other area. And then um, my supervisors, John Hodges and Olivier Piguet were like, oh yeah, let's go with this then. This is, this is great. So I ended up being able to just do exactly what I wanted to do. And yeah, I've kind of built, I don't know. It just, it just felt like this is right. This is absolutely what I want to do. And I just remember being so excited during those first few years just because I was finding new things and watching my hypotheses sort of play out like in front of me in these interviews with patients and just feeling like this is this is the best thing you know that's ever happened to me I'm in this group where they get what I'm interested in and they're letting me do it and they've got all these resources and they think I'm doing a good job like this is you know it just kind of fits my personality and where I had come from and that I was getting, you know, this mentorship as well that was like, now we're going to get you to go for a fellowship and like always kind of pushing me along yeah. to the next kind of stage. Yeah. Oh, it's amazing. And I think, you know, the way you speak about that academic freedom is I suppose what drives us all, you know, and that's what we, that's why we're in the job with 
with so many ups and downs and struggles, but it's to get that kind of, you know, to reach that pinnacle of I have academic freedom. Absolutely. And I think I appreciated it all the more because I had done those two stints out. And so when you're working, like, I don't know, it just didn't suit me. So working in industry, it's great. And I can see why it's really attractive that you go in and you punch in your hours and you go home again. I hated it. Like it just didn't suit me at all. I hated not having any creativity, any sort of input. It was like, you're just following very prescribed lines for certain things. And so going in and then kind of being told in the new postdoc, yeah, you can, you know, if you want, you can do your own thing here and you can, you know, set up a study if you like on something else. And so I started reading avidly and, you know, I couldn't even collect the data fast enough. I was like driving around to visit patients and do home visits to get the data more quickly. And yeah, and then being told, oh, well, we've got all these scans. So if you want to learn neuroimaging, you can do that too. And it's like, you're letting me like, yeah, it just, it was so different to what, um, you know, the other option of being in industry was. This was like, yeah, we'll help you do that. What else do you want to do? Do you want to go to this meeting? Yeah, okay, we'll find some funding and we'll help you do that. And it was just like, things were really hard before. And now I feel like I've just landed in you know, the promised land. And, you know, so I try to, looking back now, I try to do that with my group. It's like, you need to be doing a research topic that you that really lights you up and that you're interested in because this is setting you on the path for, your academic journey and if you're starting now and you're already sort of you know ambivalent about the topic it's not gonna it's not gonna go well absolutely um you know as you said you know doing a research topic that lights you up um, and you can see how passionate you are when you speak about your research so I think this is a perfect opportunity to bring it in and I'm just you know to start off with I suppose why are you interested in memory I guess again it wasn't something that I consciously thought of you know, prior to university or anything. But I think like as a as a child, I did have one of these like weird memories where I'd like, I just remember things. And like <laughs> my parents would be like coming to me going, who did the ironing last week? Was it me or was it your father? And then I'd have to like weigh in and adjudicate. And I'm like, oh, it's a curse. <laughs> but um, yeah, I just, I just remembered things. And I think I found it quite easy to learn and to take information in quickly and I think it was only when I got I think it was third year in um psychology in my degree so Ian again Ian Robertson was doing um a course on clinical clinical neuropsychology you know learning about these you know really interesting cases like people who have facial neglect and you know they're not able to pay attention to one half of their of their bodies or their field of vision Um, and I just found these kind of things just so interesting that it was taking it back to the person the patient literature I just sort of drank it (laughs) like I just really really enjoyed it and then it, it coincided obviously with my grandmother and her memory, you know, really declining. And, you know, I'd seen this since I was about 14, like with all the early signs. So I had lived with this as sort of part and parcel of growing up and trying to understand it and trying to work around it. And so I started getting really interested in the Alzheimer literature and just reading on that in my own time. So I think for me, I... And for me, memory is sort of the key to, to pretty much everything. It's like who we are. It's who we are, where we've been and where we're going. And that's where the link to imagination comes in. So around the time that I was finishing up my PhD, 
there were a few of these really kind of seminal findings in the literature that showed that the same memory network activates when people are remembering past events, but also envisaging future events. And it's like this same core network is sort of the key to being able to envisage mentally rich sort of imagery in rich, rich detail. That's things that you could do, but also what you have imagined. And it isn't just a simple case of that you're just recasting or recapitulating old experiences from the past and just envisaging them again. It's even when you're asking people to recombine and to think of novel or implausible or unique situations. And so this really sparked my interest because there was this whole literature starting to talk about the hippocampus being critical for envisaging scenes and for building up the sort of um, representation of scenes to enable you to envisage the future. And so when I got to Sydney and I was working with this group of really incredible patients, so who have semantic dementia, I was curious as to whether semantic memories, this is our world knowledge, was also a driver of being able to imagine the future or imagine situations in general. And this was something that hadn't really been touched on in the literature. So there were some old papers from like the 1980s, like theoretical pieces that had kind of alluded to it and I think the hippocampal activation in many of the studies had kind of overshadowed and led people to keep pursuing the episodic memory sort of side of the coin. And I kept thinking, what about semantic memory? What about semantic memory? So working with these patients who have a loss of semantic memory, but intact episodic memory, sort of let me chip away. And we found these really lovely like double dissociations where they were good at recent episodic memory, but poor at future thinking. And yeah, it was just so interesting and that it wasn't related to hippocampal atrophy. It was actually related to temporal lobe atrophy, which would implicate, again, the semantic memory system. So that was like, you know, watching my these patients, you know, remembering the past in, in good detail. And then I'd ask them, OK, so what do you think you can what would you do next year? And the whole sort of endeavor falling apart was just so like it was sort of the stuff of goosebumps where you're going, oh, my God, I'm onto something here. Like, this is amazing. And trying to, like, keep my <laughs> keep my poker face while I would keep going with the assessment. And then I'd be frantically scoring up all the um the interviews and transcribing them like in my spare time and then pairing it with learning the imaging. And yeah, so we had this really great paper that we put out and. I will say to the people listening, it takes a while for your ideas to catch on. And people are only really sitting up and taking notice now of the episodic semantic interactions almost 10 years after we first published that paper. Yeah. Their own, it's only starting to, to come around now. And at the time I was getting a bit like, oh, why is nobody citing this? This is so interesting. But yeah, you have to play the long game as well and realize like, that it takes a while for these ideas to take hold as well. And I suppose, you know, you, you know, we want to get into the whole area of dementia. So for people listening who may not be aware, I think I heard you speak about dementia is more of an umbrella term and there's many different forms. Um, and I suppose your findings are only in one particular form. 
Yeah, so I think just yeah, to clarify, so the group that I work with, we specialize in younger onset dementia. So this is dementia that strikes under the age of 65. And so a lot of our participants are actually in their sort of late 40s, mid 50s. And it's that's quite characteristic of these syndromes that we're working with. But it's interesting that in the studies that we've conducted, looking at future thinking, irrespective of the condition that we're looking at it in. So we've done studies now in Alzheimer's disease, in frontotemporal dementia, in semantic dementia. We've even started piloting some work in Huntington's disease, and we've done just um, submitted a study on Korsakoff's. It seems to be like a universal symptom that there's a really marked inability to envisage yourself in rich detail in the future. And so we're actually wondering if this might be a very early sort of feature of dementia, that it's the prospective aspect of memory that might be compromised years, years, years in advance before we start seeing the really sort of florid memory and visuospatial kind of impairments. And obviously that has huge implications for so many aspects of our lives because we really are like this perspective species like we're always thinking ahead and it's really essential to our well-being and our everyday functioning you know if you're not thinking one step ahead every time it's it's like really really dangerous you know in traffic and you know medication even financial planning it's all it's all interlinked so there's huge functional kind of ramifications for not being able to actually think of consequences or think about yourself days ahead, weeks ahead, and then much, much further ahead in time. I think that's so interesting, the thought, because I think when people think of dementia, they think of the loss of memories that they've had, but not really loss of future memories or future thoughts. Yeah. yeah. And it's one of the really, I think it's quite poignant. Um, is that if you think about it, yeah. You know, what is it like if you would lose that ability to imagine or to to envisage yourself going forward into the future? I think that's just devastating. It's like, then what does that speak to, you know, in terms of your motivation to do things? If you can't imagine yourself next week, well, what, what really is the point? Or if you can't imagine meeting up with your grandkids or doing something lovely with your children, it really strips away a lot of the aspects of pleasure that we derive you know from our daily lives and we're starting to now look at that sort of link between future thinking ability and this idea of anhedonia which is the loss of pleasure and we've found that anhedonia actually hadn't been documented in many of these syndromes before and we've just published a a large paper on that earlier this year Um, and now we're starting to think well maybe it's this anticipatory sort of it's fundamental to the human experience. You know, why else would we do things otherwise, unless we're expecting to get some kind of reward from it or some kind of positive benefit? And so I really think there's a link there between losing that ability to envisage and to think about things in the future and to anticipate or to derive that anticipatory pleasure from it and the sense of, you know, apathy and loss of motivation and anhedonia that we actually are starting to see across these syndromes. And the other thing I think that's really sort of makes me feel really actually sad and has implications for care is um, we did a study about two years ago looking at mind wandering and daydreaming in, in frontotemporal dementia. And we found that actually our patients were unable to take themselves away from stimuli that we presented in front of them 
to daydream or to envisage, you know, alternative kind of scenarios. So we have this really boring task where there's really nothing to do but look at the screen and various stimuli. And a healthy older adult will go, okay, so it's a, you know, it's a blue square. And then after you watch it for like a minute, you're like, blue square, blue square. And your mind will start to go and go blue, blue waves, the ocean, you know, or I need to pick up something from the shops on my way home. How long is this experiment going to take? You know, I must call my aunt, this kind of thing. And we found that our participants with frontotemporal dementia were just tethered and stuck to those stimuli. So for me, that raises really big sort of issues about bringing the environment and bringing stimulation to the person because there's something about the spontaneous generation of alternatives that our patients are not able to do they're not able to endogenously generate this and you can't just expect then a patient in care to be able to think oh I want to listen to some music it's that ability to generate Mm -hmm. um, seems to be compromised and that doesn't mean that they can't derive pleasure if you brought the experience to them it just means the initiation is not there to be able to generate those ideas so it's making us rethink how we deliver care and how we sort of plan activities for the individual because if you can't if you can't take yourself away from the current moment and you're stuck tethered to your immediate environment you want to make sure that environment is as pleasant and as stimulating as possible so yeah it's been really interesting for us to kind of discuss our findings with like carers and and participants with dementia to understand what it's like for them and we're doing a lot more in terms of sort of presenting our work now to people with lived experience to try and understand like how can we take these findings and start doing something making a difference really you know in the lives of people who are living with dementia another huge um, piece of work that you published was on the the loss of empathy in dementia patients and I suppose speak to me about that and I suppose what that means for that that person yeah so this was I mean this is another one of these really interesting studies but then there's a human a human side to it when you think about what that means in terms of relationships and people who are affected. So again, in this patient group of frontotemporal dementia, so we know that the sort of the locus of the pathology and the locus of atrophy is in the frontal lobes and kind of the frontoinsular cortices. And these regions are really, really highly connected with like the limbic areas of the brain that are so important for emotion and also for like prefrontal regions that are implicated in kind of detecting changes or salient events in the environment. So we were interested to explore the neural basis of loss of empathy in frontotemporal dementia. And so we had our patients and our carers rate their ability to, you know, empathize using a very standard and validated questionnaire. And we asked the carers to rate the individuals um, sort of pre-morbid, so prior to the onset of their dementia syndromes or symptoms, their ability to empathize. And we found there was a really big difference in terms of before and present. And that difference correlated with changes in the sort of 
the intimacy or the strength of the bond between the carer and the patient. And it also correlated with the level of stress that the carer was experiencing or the burden that they were experiencing. But then we took neuroimaging as well. So we were looking at structural neuroimaging and we found that actually these changes in empathy were very much related to frontoinsular regions in the brain. And yeah, I think just working on the study for me, I love finding, you know, associations that make sense in terms of like the neurobiology but what struck me was that we're talking about you know an inability to show another person that you understand them and actually that you care this is the thing that got me with the patients and the carers it's like there is an organic reason why the individual with frontotemporal dementia can't show this but it's very difficult for the family members to go oh he you know I don't feel like he cares about me anymore or I'm crying but he doesn't seem to notice or doesn't seem to understand and I think it's that sort of it can lead to this you know, real estrangement between formerly really close family members. And it can seem like there's a change of personality as well that can really impact the way, you know, the dynamic between different family members or the spouse. So, you know, I, I do try in, in our research to always bring it back to what these changes mean. So I love understanding the brain and I love understanding brain behavior relationships, but there are people on the end of those you know, behaviors. And I always try to take it back and put it into context. But what is it like if you cannot experience or show that you can feel empathy towards somebody else? And then on the other side, how could we make it maybe easier for, you know, the family members or the carers to understand these changes as an organic reason? You know, it's a it's an actual physical thing that has changed in the brain. Does that help you to to understand and to maybe cope with some of these changes and can we find a way to maybe you know offer some educational or management strategies to help the carer so yeah it's it's complicated but it's it's so fascinating as well yeah absolutely and I think maybe it might offer some comfort that it's not their fault you know this mm-hmm. is linked to a destruction of some part of their brain you know might offer some solace yeah, I think so. I think it's it's easier to reconcile, I think, when you know that there's a physical reason um, and when you can show and say this part of the brain that actually facilitates or supports that ability, there's so much atrophy there. And it's not that the individual is making a choice to not care about you. It's actually that, you know, the, the circuits that regulate that behavior are actually damaged so I think that does help but again because we're dealing with you know progressive conditions there's not much that you know that we can really offer in terms of you know there's no drug cure there's no treatments that have been proven to be effective with some of these conditions so it's anything that we can do to try and help the individual and their family members to understand and maybe manage or cope a bit better I mean that for me would be a huge bonus until we do find effective like disease modifying therapies I read an article you did where it was like you know why does time fly when we get older which I found so interesting is like that idea of our perception of time changes as we age oh yeah this is one that's that really resonates with me now being a parent so it's like time just it really depends on 
your current, I guess, mood, the tasks as well that you're taking on and, you know, how occupied you are and your attentional resources. And, you know, there's all different theories as to why this might change as you get older. But like some of them say it's proportional to how much time you've spent you know, on the earth versus how much time is left and how little kids feel like Christmas is an age away. But you think it's, you know, because you're the adult who has to prepare for Christmas. You're like, oh, the days are just whizzing past. There are some interesting ones where they discuss, you know, that it's being busy and being, you know, that there's so many concerns now that we don't have the actual attentional resources to stop and pause. It's like we're bombarded with all this information. We're constantly hearing like news updates. You know, it's like we're processing, processing all the time, trying to work, you know, if you're on a commute, on a train, you're trying to work there. You're not just sitting and enjoying the scenery anymore. And it's so it could be just a function of busyness. But one of my students actually has been doing um, some studies looking at time perception in aging and dementia and we do actually see subtle sort of shifts in terms of you know overestimating and underestimating using different durations so it seems like that there are some detectable changes it's just we don't fully understand I guess what the functional significance of those changes are like does it make a difference if you feel that time is going faster in terms of your well-being or your you know, capacity to function well in everyday situations. So that's something that we're going to start exploring now. Um, Once things are back running again. It's so interesting. Yeah, no, I I really enjoyed that article. I just thought it was so interesting to think of like when we dread things as well, things seem to go slower Mm -hmm. too. Um, I, you know, I know you're a big advocate for women in STEM and, you know, retention of women uh, in science and talk to me about that. Yeah. So again, this is something that I only started to really notice when I came back from maternity leave following the birth of my first child Fionn just how difficult it was to get going again and that just how difficult it was even to ask for my funding to be paused you know or to I think I had I ran into difficulty asking one of my funders to allow me to keep spending my money while I was on maternity leave to keep a person employed to collect data and that was like seemed to be you know ridiculous like you're supposed to be on maternity leave why would you be collecting data you know it's like once you've had a child your priorities are supposed to completely switch and then then you can switch back and it's that's just not that's not how it works yeah I really wanted to make sure that my group was still ticking over and that I was still collecting my data and that would make me be able to enjoy my maternity leave because I wouldn't be stressing about how my work was going and even coming back I felt that there was this it's not meant in any malicious way but people weren't as quick to maybe offer opportunities as they might have been pre. <laughs> so it was more like, oh, you've got a lot on your plate or Marin's got a lot on her plate. Don't don't bother her. And really, I was going, no, I do bother me because I actually need these opportunities to progress, you know, and I can see how well intended, you know, decisions can actually really hamper women being able to to regain that momentum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think I just started becoming much more aware of it. You know, my work day was totally truncated. And, you know, when you go back to work, having had a child, they're sick, you know, and they start daycare, they pick up everything. So you're in and out of work, you're home, they're sick, you're, you go in, you try and do something, you get a call, you have to leave again, they've got a fever and it's very disjointed and you're working 
harder than you have worked before, more productively, but it just feels like there's more obstacles to get to where you want to be. So yeah, I ended up, I was very lucky actually in the year that I came back from maternity leave that I was the recipient of one of the L'Oreal for Women in Science Australia and New Zealand Awards. And that was huge for me in terms of just, just my confidence, because I really was feeling yeah. a bit sort of, oh, I don't know if I can do this. You know, this is really hard. And having no family as well in Australia, like it just, it just felt really difficult. And also feeling like I still want to do the best that I can for my job. But that means there might be a perception that I'm not totally dedicated to Fionn and that's not the case either and it was like feeling pulled and that I was doing everything badly (laughs) you know that I'm not being as as involved as I should be you know I'm not making cookies for daycare you know buying the cupcakes and wrapping them in tinfoil (laughs) bringing them down this kind of thing um yeah and I think just winning that fellowship it, it had a snowball effect so it got me out speaking to high schools and to girls in high schools and I remember we did this really big event um, at UNSW and it was the girls in science day there were 300 you know high school girls who were asking like how do you how do you have a career in science and you know have a child like I I don't want to go into science because I just it's not compatible and they were so aware of all the negativity mm-hmm. but like I think they needed to see people that were actually making it work and it, it really made me like I don't know, just sad that already at the age of like 14 or something, these girls are are, are saying, I, I don't want to do this because all I'm hearing is how difficult it is. And so I kind of thought, right, well, I need to like, we need to get out there and, you know, we need to kind of show that we're just normal people and I'm just fudging along. I've just happened to be in a career that I really love. And that's what helps me do a good job so you know don't select yourself out of something because you think it's too hard because if you find the thing that you love it actually becomes really easy and then so superstars of stem launched a few years later and again that was all about sort of promoting positive imagery raising up the sort of parity of women and their representation in science in the media and yeah we were just kind of everywhere you know we're on doing news we were doing like school visits. I really love the school visits. You know, I think that's so important. So I did a few of them where I was heavily pregnant (laughs) and, you know, the girls were like, Oh my God, you're going to have a baby. And I'm like, yeah, you can, you know, it's, it's not rocket science. (laughs) It's just brain science. (laughs) You know, it's, it's fine. It's like, you can do this. I really like doing that kind of thing. I think just being able to show like demystify it a bit and go, look, I didn't have a clue. You guys are already way ahead of where I was at your age like they're all doing these olympiads and these massive competitions and they're just these the new this generation is just amazing so I have no doubt that any of the schools I go into that the the children or young adults as well that are there can can achieve what they want I just hate the idea of someone thinking that it's not for them because they didn't realize that there are many different pathways Mm. and many ways to make it work. Yeah. And I think it's so important that visibility and to, you know, see those role models like yourself and probably you going in heavily pregnant probably was really um, powerful for for those girls to see. Um, Warren, one of my last few questions for you, what is it that makes you tick? What makes you get up in the morning? Like, why do you love your job? Um, And I suppose, why do you know that this is the right career choice for you? I think it's the, I think, it's the idea of discovery I think it's really 
you know, what are we going to find today? And like, I lo- I just love the brain. I mean, I just, I think it's so fascinating. Like sometimes I dream about the brain. It's so strange. I'll wake up and go, last night I was in the posterior cingulate and I was sort of like <laughs> going around and all this pink stuff, you know, and I don't know. It's just, I, I really just find it so, so interesting. I think doing the clinical work as well, it's like you see it bear out. You see your hypotheses play out in real life and then you can think about ways of helping and I think they combine a lot of things that I am very passionate about it's like I don't want to just you know do work that doesn't have meaning for people and I think as well like psychology you know in hindsight now I think it was the ideal choice for me because I love writing you know I love being able to like use my words to create a story and I think that's really important in science people don't realize how much of storytelling is involved and it also lets me bring in maths which I always really liked as well so like there's a lot of stats there's coding for imaging so I feel like I'm pulling on all those different things that I've always really liked But there is also a sort of artistry as well. So I love like making presentations, you know, for scientific conferences and making my slides look good and trying to present things in a really nice visual way. And so I sort of feel like that's my dad's influence coming in, that it's things need to be visually appealing for people to understand. And probably both my parents, the teaching, you know, trying to convey information in an accessible way like there's no point trying to sound like you're smart I find like those talks where you can't get past the first slide what a waste of everyone's time like for you to put that effort in and nobody understands what you're saying so yeah I think there's many different aspects and now for me as well it's like I really like investing in my students so you know, trying to kind of get them to where I am now and sort of like foster their confidence and make them see how amazing they are. They're all doing way more than I ever did at that point, you know, and trying to demystify, I think, some of the the process as well and not let them miss opportunities or think that they're not good enough. Oh, that was that was actually such a lovely explanation, especially I loved when you kind of brought in your parents as well, you know, that their influence perhaps has has molded you and and, and your work. Mm-hmm. Um, we're in my last question for you, which I ask all of my guests now is if you weren't a researcher, if you weren't in this job that you are in today, where do you think your life might have ended up or what job do you think oh, you would have had? It's such a hard one. I mean, there have been days where we would joke and say, if you weren't you know, if we all have to leave science tomorrow, what would what will you do? And so <laughs> some of the answers my colleagues have given of like, oh, I'll just, you know, work in a kitchen and make rice and just look after a rice cooker or something. <laughs> so I think I would probably I think because I really like tidiness. So I would probably do a bit of a Marie Kondo try and set up a business that way I love folding I love packing it's very odd I love cleaning stuff out and like having everything nice and neat and orderly the other thing I've started doing actually is I'm starting to like look at writing kids books with my um, seven-year-old fiance that could be something as well because I do love writing and drawing and stuff so yeah I mean if it all goes pear-shaped tomorrow I've got you know the clothes folding business and (laughs) the children's books as a backup I love that answer me and my sister she's like I never can know what the guest is going to say at the end as to what their their answer is and I know she will love the clothes folding (laughs) one (laughs) well Maren it's been so lovely to chat to you Uh, thank you so much for for coming on the podcast today my absolute pleasure absolutely loved it thank you so much 
So that's it for another week of Unraveling Science. A big thanks again to our sponsor Biosciences, now part of Thermo Fisher Scientific. And if you like this episode, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 